The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dominic Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, further to reporting on advances at the battlefront, we discuss developments with the humanitarian grain corridor in the Black Sea, movements in the alleged Russian spy ring in the UK, and how Russia and Iran may be circumventing sanctions by using the Caspian Sea. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 15th of August, one year and 173 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Durnley, and Elizabeth Braw, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a regular writer for Foreign Policy magazine, and a specialist in geopolitics and globalisation, grey zone aggression and societal resilience. I started with the latest news from Ukraine. So firstly, geolocated footage over the last two days indicates that Ukrainian forces have advanced into Robotine. This is in the west of the uh, the southern front. And they also seem to have committed additional counteroffensive brigades to that area, so in western Zaporizhia Oblast. This is the, let's say, the western of those two axes of advance in the south. Now let's flick over to the east, and Hanna Malia, Ukraine's deputy defence minister, said in a statement this morning that Uruzhina, which is about 60 k's northeast from Robotine, uh, and that's just inside Donetsk Oblast, had been released, in her words, released. She said, our defenders are entrenched at the borders. The offensive continues. Ukraine's MOD put out a tweet a few minutes ago, which said that the 35th and 38th Marine Brigades had liberated Regina. But then in a, uh, a pretty pragmatic statement, actually, in terms of expectation management, a Ukrainian colonel has said that the, uh, quite rightly, I think, said the counteroffensive still has a long way to go, despite the capture of the town, given uh, the depth of Russian defences. So this uh, Colonel Vladislav Zelenziov, he was speaking to RBC Ukraine and he said, after Ojina, there are still several lines of defence that need to be overcome. It is not worth talking about the fact that the situation will fundamentally change. I completely agree, as in, I think that level of expectation management needs to be needs to be taken on board. Yeah, you, Ukraine quite rightly should celebrate its successes, but equally the, the narrative needs to bed in that there's a very, very long way to go still. Now, secondly, according to British military intelligence today, Russia has almost certainly started to deploy domestically produced kamikaze drones. They call them one-way attack drones, but ease of reference, you know, kamikaze drones. They're based on the um, Iranian Shahid designs, you know, the 131 and the 136 that we've seen Russia using. Russia has been importing these Iranian-made systems since September last year, and they've obviously used their time to copy the design. Britain's MOD says the performance of these drones, so the domestically produced Russian drones, has been variable, and Ukraine has been able to bring most of them down, either shooting them down or by electronic warfare means. 
MOD, Britain's MOD, say Russia likely aims for self-sufficiency in these drones. But in the interim, Russia remains reliant on components and the whole weapons from Iran, primarily shipped via the Caspian Sea. Our guest Elizabeth is going to chill off of much food for thought on how the Caspian Sea is being used. Okay, next, Ukraine's uh, security service, so the internal security service, the SBU, unusually has taken credit for the recent maritime drone strikes against the Kirsch Bridge in Crimea and Russian ships in the Black Sea. So Kiev has previously avoided admitting to any such attacks beyond either anonymous briefings, but they, I mean, they made some odd comments or some you know, playful comments, if you like, suggesting Russia had been targeted by unidentified floating objects. So we, we kind of all, you can assess what's going on here, but they very, very rarely make any specific on-the-record comments. But Vassal Maluk, who's the head of the SBU, speaking to CNN, he said that they had recently conducted successful hits on the Kirsch Bridge, along with the landing craft, the Olenogorsk Gorniak and the SIG oil tanker. So about two, two weeks ago, two Fridays ago, wasn't it? About 10 days ago. Mr. Maluk said, sea surface drones are a unique invention of the security service of Ukraine. None of the private companies are involved. So they've probably come out of the blocks, haven't they? I mean, firstly, they don't often comment on these things. Now they're saying, no, it's all us. Last week's Defence In Depth film, actually, which you'll find on YouTube, I was looking at these, the maritime drones and quite what it means for for Ukraine and, and sea warfare more broadly. So shameless plug, go and have a look at that. And then finally, on the military updates, Politico are reporting that the uh, 2023 hide-and-seek champion, General Sergei Sorovkin, is apparently under house arrest. To be fair to Politico, they don't call him the house no hide-and-seek champion. That's I'm afraid that's me. So this is the former commander of Russia's forces in Ukraine who disappeared following uh, Wagner Group's mutiny in June or whatever that was. So General Sorovkin, who was an ally of the Wagner boss, Yevgeny Pogosian, they're maybe not so pally now, but uh, Politico is saying he's apparently unable to leave the apartment where he's being held, but has been allowed visitors. And then a Russian blog site, which I can't pronounce, but does have links to Russia's security service, says he is under a kind of house arrest and added, there is no official investigation, but Sorovkin spent a long time in limbo answering uncomfortable questions, which doesn't sound fun at all. Now, as other commentators have said, I certainly can't lay claim to this as my own exclusive thoughts. But I think this is good news for Ukraine if Sorovkin has been sidelined. He was one of the few Russian commanders who seemed to know his astute from his longbow. And when he was, albeit briefly, in charge, he, he lobbied Putin and was rewarded with the idea that Russia needed to withdraw from Hezon and concentrate on fortifying positions across the southern front. That's why the, the formidable defensive positions down there, the obstacle belt is called the Sorovkin line. So if he's out of favour, that's good for Ukraine. I mean, it would have, obviously, Putin has never declared he's stepped back from his maximalist aims of taking the whole country in Kiev and all the rest of it. So for the general in charge to have lobbied him and said, we need to, we need to cede some ground here. I mean, that was a significant success for him, for Sorovkin. So yeah, the fact that he's now on the sidelines and answering uncomfortable questions is probably good for Ukraine. So, Francis, what's been happening on the diplomatic front, please? Well, ever since Russia pulled out of the grain deal, it seemed to many observers that the West was caught off guard and had few tangible contingencies in place for getting the grain out of Ukraine, something that matters, of course, immensely to global food prices, as we've covered in the past. 
Now, various proposals have been considered, including one favoured by Germany to try and export as much as possible via rail. But we learned today in the Wall Street Journal that the United States has lent its backing to a scheme for Ukraine to export 4 million tonnes of grain per month via the River Danube. So Romania had previously said it wanted to double the 2 million tonnes of grain that passes through its ports. And their plan is to reach this milestone by October. However, crucially, it seems Russia is aware of this evolving strategy. Ukrainian grain exports going through Romania have more than halved after Russia began targeting Danube ports such as Reni and Ismail. Reni, of course, is just 200 metres, metres from the Romanian border, which was targeted by the Russians only last night. Data shows that it's received a monthly average of 1.25 million tonnes of grain between January and June, but just 0.6 million tonnes in July. So it would appear that Russia is having some success in reducing the grain that is leaving those ports. Now, staying with the grain deal, there are also some signs that the so-called humanitarian corridor, that's the Ukrainian term for it, that they announced last week, which of course Moscow has not yet said it will recognise, is functioning, albeit on a very small level. This is despite shipping and insurance sources expressing concerns about said route's safety. A container ship has left the Ukrainian port of Odessa, we understand. It's called the Yosef Schult, a Hong Kong flagged vessel which has been trapped since the full-scale invasion began. It was carrying more than 30,000 metric tonnes of cargo in thousands of containers, according to Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister. Nevertheless, we have seen in recent days a Russian warship fire warning shots as it intercepted a different cargo ship sailing towards Ukraine, the first time that it has done so since the grain deal collapsed. Russia's Ministry of Defence said that the Vasily Baikov fired its machine gun to force the Sukru Okhan to stall in the Black Sea and then boarded it with a naval helicopter. The crew of this Turkish cargo ship were then lined up on deck as Russian servicemen searched the vessel for prohibited goods. It was then supposedly permitted to sail on to Ismail after the inspection. It looks likely that Russia released the footage, and you can see it on the Telegraph website and on our YouTube channel, in order to try and deter other vessels from making this journey, and so that it could try and claim that it was being responsible in how it handled the shipping routes. As ever, these things are always very carefully calibrated for an international audience. But it's pretty shocking footage. And as you say, you see the the Turkish uh, crew lined up on deck with their hands behind them. And uh, it's evidently designed to send a signal uh, to those of us watching it. Now, in other news, I spoke yesterday about concerns within Poland at the actions of the Wagner Group in Belarus. Well, it's not just them. The Lithuanian government has said that it will close two of its country's six border crossing points with Belarus due to geopolitical circumstances. That's their term. They've not said anything more about this, but one imagines it is partly for security reasons and partly as a diplomatic rebuke to Belarus. 
Now, despite Belarus's increasing isolation, Chinese Defence Minister Li Shangfu has arrived in Belarus today, according to the Belarusian state news agency Belta. They're citing the country's defence ministry. According to them, pertinent questions of military cooperation in areas of mutual interest will be discussed at meetings with Belarus's military leadership. Li is also expected to visit several military facilities in the country later today and during his trip. It's yet another reminder that China is not afraid to upset certain countries and one could argue whose side it is ultimately on in this war despite its claims that it is above the fray and it's seeking to have this sort of mediator role. Now, lastly, another story that we spoke about at the end of the podcast in yesterday's episode was the breaking news story here in the UK that three members of a suspected Russian spying were arrested by counter-terror police. Well, the Telegraph can now reveal more details, namely that these individuals lived in a flat one mile from an RAF base used by ministers and the royal family. For around a decade, so a very long period of time, all three had links to a flat in West London, a short distance from the RAF Northolt military base. As I say, members of the royal family regularly use the base to fly abroad, and it's also used frequently by ministers and foreign heads of state. All three Bulgarian nationals were initially arrested on suspicion of committing offences under the Official Secrets Act, but were charged with possession of false identity documents after a cache of fake passports was allegedly discovered by detectives. One neighbour on the street described how one of the individuals claimed that he worked for Interpol, and that was why he tried to erect a huge satellite dish on the side of his property. Scotland Yard officers are said to have found forged press cards and clothing for the Discovery and National Geographic channels, suggesting that the three may have posed as journalists in surveillance operations. And that's coming out of the Times newspaper, the Times of London. And since we're speaking about spycraft, Ukraine security services have also claimed to have arrested a Russian spy who attempted to infiltrate a paratrooper unit. The SBU have said, we detained a collaborator in the Kyiv region who tried to join the airborne assault troops unit of the armed forces of Ukraine to gather intelligence for the benefit of Russia. He had to find out about the locations of training centres of Ukrainian paratroopers and the estimated number of personnel undergoing training. This man, who allegedly collaborated with Russian forces during their occupation of Herzon, apparently also planned to reveal the positions and movement of paratrooper units on the front line. So more on all of that as we have it, although I think the most striking feature of these stories is just how old school they feel. Fake passes, satellite dishes, it is like something from a Le Carre novel, although in the case of this British story, I think suburban West London isn't quite as glamorous as Prague or West Berlin. Now, I'm very pleased to introduce today's guest, Elizabeth Braw. Delighted to have you with us a little while since we spoke, Elizabeth. You have written... On Monday, I think, in foreign policy, at least that was the, the online, not sure, quite sure when the magazine comes out, but I saw the online version Monday, about these mysterious shipping journeys that are taking place in the Caspian Sea. And you suggested that Russia and Iran are using that route to get around sanctions. Can you talk about that? And, and what else have you been uh, looking at in this regard? Yes, it's extraordinary to, to see what's happening in the Caspian Sea. And, and I should say, it's, it's, it's hard to tell exactly what's happening uh, because what is happening is that, that uh, a very significant number of Russian and Iranian flagged vessels 
are going dark. So they are clearly trying to hide something. And what that something is, we don't know. But the fact that they are going dark is an indication that they don't want to, to see what they are up to. And, and going dark, as, as you know, and, and your listeners know, is, is when a ship turns off its automatic identification system. So you can't know where it is. And you can't really see it. And, and the reason that, that ships uh, are required to have their AIS on is, is so that other ships can see them. But what has happened over the years uh, since AIS was introduced is that um, observers like me can then also uh, track vessels. And that's clearly what the Russians and Iranians don't want us to do. I mean, what do these gaps tell us? Because I looked at the graphic and the foreign policy article and you can see the little dots and then there's obviously large gaps. But I mean, you can literally join the dots. So are you suggesting that they're doing something when they are dark or they're just mucking around or pushing the edges of internationally accepted norms? Or what do you think is going on in, in the region? Again, we can't say with any certainty, but the fact that that they are going dark for so long uh, suggests that that they want to sail without us knowing that that they are sailing there. So we should remember that AIS gaps can happen for technical reasons when there's bad weather or when the equipment uh, has problems. But if I look here at uh, my chart of how long these uh, ships, AIS gaps, are taking place for, it's uh, and I'm looking at my chart now, so, for example, in July of this year, we had 169 gaps of uh, four to seven days. That's a very long time. That's much longer than it takes you to, to fix uh, a technical fault. So what they clearly want to do, and that's the Russian vessels only. So what they clearly want to do is, is transport goods to and from uh, Russia and Iran uh, without us taking too close a look. And that matters because Iran is really one of Russia's few remaining friends and and also a friend with whom Russia can uh, trade goods of a purely commercial kind, but also of a military kind. And I think that's what makes it so fascinating. Something is going back and forth in the Caspian Sea, which, as your listeners know, is, is the world's largest lake, uh, more like an ocean. And it's a lake that has both Russia and, and Iran as, as, as uh, border states. So it's, it's a lake through which you can uh, very easily trade goods. And uh, that's clearly what's happening. And I would love to know what's on those vessels. Do they need to go dull? What can be done about this? What's the enforcement agency? Is it possible to board these ships? They've got every right, haven't they, to, to transit between Russia and Iran, and okay, they might be they, the suggestion, of course, is they're, they're busting sanctions or sending these drones or goodness knows what. But in terms of regular trade, they're able to do that. Are they? Are they not? Or or can we look to some overarching authority that has the agreed international right to stop them and say, "Oi, chum, what's going on?" Well, I would love for the world to have a global maritime police, but we don't have one. We have the International Maritime Organization, which is uh, based in, in London, as you know. But it's that's a sort of a consensus body that, that makes decisions about rules, the rules that should apply to uh, to maritime activities. But it, it's uh, not in a position to to travel around the world and, and enforce these rules. And, and so it's it's up to countries to do their best. And, and the way it has worked over the years and, and has worked for the most part pretty well 
well is that countries' authorities enforce rules that, that they have agreed to through uh, the IMO decision-making process. But what do you do when countries just decide not to enforce these rules? Then uh, you're really stuck, or the global shipping community is stuck. And we have the sort of deterioration of order in global shipping, and yet nobody can really do anything about it. I mean, for example... Should, should the U.S. Navy send ships to, to the Caspian Sea to enforce order? I don't think so. Uh, and also because it's not an ocean. How, how would those ships get there? But uh, it, it, the U.S. Navy is also not the, the world's uh, maritime police. So it's unclear who can do anything about it. And that is the challenge with this, Dom, that, that uh, at the moment it's Russia and Iran. It used to be Iran that, used, that, that was the main practitioner of, of shady shipping practices along with, with countries like Venezuela. And North Korea simply because they needed to uh, ship stuff, even though they were under heavy sanctions. Now, Russia has joined this community of outcasts, which has accelerated or has vastly increased the number of dark uh, shipping uh, journeys we are seeing. And who is supposed to enforce order? And if Russia can do it, then other countries can say, well, you know, we'll, we'll uh, let our, our ships, uh, the, the ships that, that sail under our flag or are owned in our countries, we'll let them conduct dark journeys as well. Because yeah, if Russia can do it, you know, why should we adhere to the rules? Yeah, it's another example of how international norms, in the absence of any global government and global police force, international norms that have yeah been tested and, and the edges frayed slightly over the over the decades, but they are there so that we don't need a global police force. But it just runs roughshod through them when a when a, a nation like Russia, P five member of the UN, just decides not to not to adhere to it. I just I'd be interested in your thoughts on whether or not. This is the more they do this, if they're challenging it not only with an illegal invasion, but then they do this in the against the International Maritime Organization rules and regulations. If they just push against all these edges, do you think there's enough, there's sufficient strength on the on the other side than those of us that want to uphold these norms for them to to withstand such attacks, or is it, is it just a steady chip 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 away at these things? Because of course. Beijing are loving this. They are loving watching Russia just test all these things and show them, as we all know them to be, ultimately flawed because it's it's done on goodwill. So how under threat is the international system of rules and norms, do you think? In the shipping community, it is absolutely a chip, chip, chip on the edges of, of what is permissible. And if North Korea violates maritime rules, then other countries can say, well, we are law-abiding countries we, um, and we follow the rules. But then uh, Iran is bigger and more important than North Korea and Venezuela used to be a respectable country. So they joined as well in the sort of community of uh, order-violating countries, maritime order-violating countries, and now Russia as well. And that is, I think, uh, uh, I don't want to say tipping point, but really a significant step towards uh, disorder in the in the global shipping community. Also, because the the countries that are traditionally or are the most important in, when it comes to global power are not that important in in uh, in shipping. Uh, as you know, the the world's largest shipping countries by number of vessels carrying their flags are uh, Panama. Liberia and another small country, I think it's Belize. Uh, anyway, Panama, Liberia and, and uh, the Marshall Islands. And so these are not exactly countries that, that will enforce order in, in, in global shipping, whereas the, the countries that are, that are usually able to weigh in and say, well, let's follow the rules, uh, the European Union, the UK, uh, Japan, the US and so forth. Uh, they don't really have much say in global shipping. And, and also because the IMO 
well is is weighted towards uh, the countries that have the most vessels sailing under their flags. So ordinarily, the Western community would step in and say, no more, let's let's follow the rules. But in shipping, I don't know whether they can do that. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Well, we'll keep an eye on it, obviously. Now, you've also written about the recent Quran burnings in Sweden, your home country, a reason thought to be used by Turkey to hold up Sweden's accession to NATO. Now, you've suggested not all is as it seems here and that Sweden is being unreasonably treated in the sort of global information space. Why do you say that? I think that is very much the case. And the reason for that is that Turkey obviously had legitimate concerns about Sweden joining NATO, but then this has taken on a life of its own, the issue over Quran burning. So if we we go back in time to earlier this year, uh, when Turkey had said, uh, we have concerns about Sweden joining NATO because they, they are giving refuge to Kurds and we think Kurds are terrorists, so we want Sweden to extradite them. Then a provocateur had the absolutely... Uh, crazy idea to to burn a Quran to essentially make sure that uh, President Erdogan got offended so that Sweden couldn't join NATO. And I, I don't think he had any political ideology behind it. He just wanted the attention. And what better attention than, than getting President Erdogan uh, angry with you? So that's what he did. Uh, some other activists hung an effigy of Erdogan in a public space in Stockholm also to infuriate Erdogan and, and, and uh, thwart Sweden's NATO accession. But then what happened this summer is when this really took off, this information war, which is that uh, a Kurdish refugee who arrived in Sweden a few years ago um, burnt the Quran and then triggered a massive backlash from Iraq, Iran, and other regimes in the Middle East. And these regimes, these governments, and accused Sweden of, of being an Islamophobic country and said that Sweden needs to do, introduce uh, blasphemy laws. And I think what is so fascinating and frankly fi- frightening about this case is that this one man, this Iraqi refugee, managed to, to trigger this whole uh, ch- chain reaction where Sweden is now an outcast in the Middle East and has had to has uh, has seen its ambassador expelled from from uh, Baghdad and so forth and has had to close uh, legations in, in various places. And that raises the question: Who is this Iraqi refugee? Now, Agence France Presse, so, uh, uh, AFP. And did an investigation into him and found that he used to lead uh, an Iraqi militia with strong links to Iran. And, and so he's clearly not just any refugee. And on top of that, what was so strange was that when he burned his Quran right away, straight away after that, there was a massive information, disinformation uh, a wave against Sweden about its protest laws. And it was massively in uh, Arabic language, disinformation about Sweden, and especially Russian language disinformation about Sweden. So this suggests that this was a coordinated action, which I think is something that other countries should realize they might face as well. Yeah, fascinating. Not surprising. It was there's a lot of it in Russian language. But anyway, finally for me, before I hand over to Francis, who has a, a few questions, um, you have commented many times about how uh, societies need to be more resilient in the face of so-called grey zone attacks. Just wonder if you could explain for us what you mean by grey zone attacks and and how societies can be more resilient to them. And then offer a thought on on how you think Ukrainian society has responded in the face of the latest Russian aggression. 
Yeah, so based on aggression is, is aggression below the threshold of armed military violence. And it used to be that people thought it was just disinformation, malign influence campaigns and cyber, where, but we, I think uh, we all know now that it can be anything. It can be whatever the other side thinks of. It can be subversive economic practices. It can be hostage diplomacy. It can be weaponization of migration, which is what Belarus has been practicing. Um, and it, it really is up to the creativity of the attacker side, but what it is that, that comes our way, which makes it so important to be prepared for disruption and untoward events of all kinds. And because we can't predict what's going to happen, we need uh, sort of general resilience. We need to know what to do if essential services go out, even temporarily. We need to do. Uh, we need to have information literacy among our citizens, so that we, as ordinary citizens, citizens know how to verify information. Not just in the past few days with the Swedish example, uh, the example of, of Sweden be tar- being targeted by a malign influence campaign. Information literacy would have been was indispensable, but it didn't exist. So people just kept sharing this information without first verifying it. If they had verified it, they would have said, well, this doesn't look right. I'm not going to share it. But they didn't. They didn't have the ability to verify uh, and probably not the desire to verify either. So I think information literacy courses are indispensable and also um, information about how to keep going with your daily life if the internet goes down, if power goes down, if water goes down, if the water is poisoned and all that. And since you asked how how, uh, the Ukrainians are doing, they are a fantastic example of resilience. And I think if Russia's military intelligence had been better or more honest with Putin, their officers would have said, well, Ukraine has smaller armed forces than we, Russia, do, but they have incredible citizen commitment to the country. And these people will keep going, even if we bomb their cities, even if essential services are disrupted. Um, And that's what we have seen in Ukraine. Uh, Ordinary citizens, starting with staff of the Ukrainian uh, railways, to teachers, to uh, just families keeping their their daily lives going. They've all been able to live under and and continue to exist and continue to run their society, even as as the Russians have attacked uh, every aspect of their their society. And I think that's something that we can learn from as well. We can also, the Ukrainians' experience gives us the opportunity to to plan how we would do it if, if our countries were to be attacked or harmed in some way. But what the Ukrainians are doing is absolutely demonstrating I think the power of society of resilience to be able to keep going even against a much stronger enemy. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time today. You talked there about societal resilience. And of course, as a consequence of the war in Ukraine, that is a question that is now being talked about openly amongst Western powers and European powers, including Sweden. And we have many Swedish listeners for which we're very grateful. I just wonder, first of all, What is the journey from your perspective that Sweden has gone on as a consequence of this war? What are their contributions to Ukraine? And of course, how are they now thinking about their joining NATO? It has been an incredible journey. It's also a journey that has included uh, change of government, uh, which is part of this journey. So when Russia invaded Ukraine, Sweden was obviously very quick to condemn it, along with other Western countries. But there was also realization that, oh, now 
things are real. We can't just talk about Russian aggression as, as an abstraction. And, and uh, as was the case in every other Western country, the discourse about Russia and about the need to better defend the country really took on new urgency. And Sweden has been investing more in the armed forces since then. And, and under the previous government, Sweden gave some made some military donations to Ukraine, uh, but that has really accelerated under the current government. The previous government was a, um, a centre-left government. Now there is a centre-right government, and, and this government f- clearly feels a, a strong commitment to helping the Ukrainians. And just very recently, the Swedish government announced a new aid package, military aid package for Ukraine that includes, I think, very importantly, ammunition, which is what uh, the Ukrainians seem to need most of all, a massive aid package of 3.4 billion krona, so about uh, 250 million pounds, something like that. So uh, it's it's a really significant uh, package with uh, ammunition, with parts for Combat Vehicle 90, which is a fantastic Swedish vehicle that that, do, that Sweden has already donated to Ukraine. Now, now they are sending Sweden is sending parts as well, parts for the Archer and. In addition to that, what changed with the war in Ukraine or Russia's invasion of Ukraine was the conversation about NATO. But I think what's so fascinating is that it's, it's the conversation, the discourse changed much faster in uh, in Finland than it changed in Sweden. Finland had uh, always has always been more reluctant to join NATO. And so the centre-left governments that Sweden has mostly had always said, well, if Finland decides to join NATO, then we'll think about it. And they said that knowing that Finland would never decide to join NATO. And then lo and behold, uh, Finland decided to join NATO, which is why the previous government, the centre-left government then had to take Sweden, uh, had to submit the application. And we thought Sweden would be able to easily join NATO because it's such a perfect candidate, a perfect prospective member. But Turkey has obviously blocked it. And now this government is working on finally getting Sweden across the line. Thank you. And when we're looking at Europe now as a consequence of this war, it's quite tempting to put countries in blocks, you know, those countries that are, of course, more hawkish, those who are more anxious. And I think you've described there that shift that may well have taken place within Finland over a period of some months as a consequence of the war in Ukraine. Where would you place now, if we were to put, say, Denmark, Sweden, Finland in a sort of block in terms of attitudes towards the future vision of Europe in defence matters, where would you place them? Would you think that Sweden is now a very hawkish country, more hawkish perhaps, or closer maybe to the Polish position than, say, the German position in terms of mobilisation and other things? Well, I think the four countries you mentioned, I, I would describe all of them as pragmatists. And so because the situation has changed, pragmatism uh, demands that you change your policy accordingly. And that's what's happening in all four countries in different ways, but with the same tendency, including in, in Finland. Uh, what Finland did with NATO membership was the most pragmatic step I've seen in a very long time. So going from being extremely cautious about even uh, the prospect of joining NATO to saying, well, now would be a good time to join NATO. We'll just do it. And then they they reached the consensus very quickly and did it. That, that is the, uh, uh, a fantastic example of, of pragmatism. And that pragmatism, I think, also includes how they are trying to, to help Ukraine, but also 
how they approach uh, the idea of, of some sort of European uh, defense collaboration outside uh, NATO. And uh, it's, it's something that, that French and German intellectuals like to talk about and, and strategic autonomy and, and PESCO and so forth. And it just never comes to pass, whereas pragmatic countries would say, well, that is such a, a distant, a, a, such a remote option or possibility or, or dream even. Let's work with what we've got. And that's what they're doing. Thank you. That's very interesting. And just one last question from me is going back to this theme of, I suppose we say shadow fleets or the sort of phenomena you've been describing taking place in the Caspian Sea. More broadly than the Caspian Sea, but thinking about sort of trade routes and everything that's happened since the war, do how important do you think these kind of shadowy activities have been in keeping Russia in the fight, as it were, keeping its economy afloat? Very important because the sanctions mean that that uh, Russia is cut off from many of the the uh, daily aspects of of life in in the globalized economy. So you've got to get your goods from somewhere, and this is what Iran has been perfecting over the years. As you know, Iranians get consumer goods from somewhere, even though Iran is under heavy sanctions, and it's thanks not least to. I don't want to call it subversive shipping, but dark shipping or clandestine shipping. And we'll see, we are already seeing Russia going the same route. And you could say, well, you know, what does it matter if, if Russians get their consumer goods and, and other things? Well, it does matter because if we don't have a functioning system within global shipping where vessels and countries adhere to the rules, why should then other countries adhere to the rules? And, and as, as ever, rules are pesky and annoying and it's, it's easier not to adhere to them, but it's for everybody's benefit that they exist. And if a major country just decides not to follow them, why should smaller countries follow them? And, and I think that is the, the, the problem. So it's, it's essentially sort of a microcosm, although not that small, uh, but the microcosm of deterioration of the rules-based international order that we are, we are seeing in, in lots of different ways. And shipping is such a crucial part of the rules-based international order. Well, thanks, Elizabeth, and thanks, uh, thanks, Francis. Let's start drawing to a close here. Let's move to final thoughts, and I'll just offer the the thought that uh, we'll go back to this this news that there has been there have been advances in the on the southern sector. The there, this news that we started with about additional combat brigades from Ukraine added to the counteroffensive, and certainly I've seen images of a U.S. striker vehicle, an infantry fighting vehicle, in combat. So it does suggest that they've added some extra horsepower down there. But I think there are four things that have been happening here. Firstly, Ukraine has focused on pressurizing Russian logistic lines, so hampering the flow of ammunition, fuel, food and water to the front lines. That includes the attacks um, on Ukraine. Secondly, they have shifted their tactics a bit in recent weeks to really targeting Russian artillery pieces. So going after that depth battle, there's been a massive uptick in in the number of Russian artillery pieces that have uh, been destroyed in the last few weeks. Thirdly, exhaustion. We don't think Russia is rotating its troops at the front certainly as frequently as Ukraine or anything like you really should do to keep combat troops fresh. And that will have an effect. That does have an effect after time. The Just the exhaustion, the, the, the sheer discomfort and the fear and all the rest of it, it really does, um, after a while, you just become combat ineffective. And then finally, and probably least importantly, I think the Western kit that we've talked about, that is in there. As I say, we saw your striker vehicles. There will be, there will be others. They are very capable, but more in the in the manoeuvre battle than the actual sort of hard attritional grind that it that it is at the moment, although they might be coming through some of that. But I would just echo Colonel Zelezniov's comments there about expectation management. 
when he says there's no fundamental change here and the fight goes on, but we just need to bear in mind that there's been a lot of activity, certainly not in the in the background, but a lot of activity away from the front that will eventually have an impact there and maybe we're starting to see a little bit of that. Anyway, uh, final thoughts. Francis, next, please. Thanks, Dom. The Financial Times has published an interesting interview with Christo Grozev, the lead Russia investigator at Bellingcat, the open source investigative group that has exposed numerous Russian plots and assassinations, an absolutely fantastic source for the war in Ukraine and one that we've cited many times on this podcast. Now, the interview is interesting for lots of reasons, not least for when it goes into Russian spycraft methods, as well as the personal toll that it takes on individuals like him to do the kind of work that he does, not least for his own personal safety. But for me, the most revealing part is when he talks about Russia. And to quote him, I said last January that Bogosian would turn on Putin within six months, and it just fitted into my time frame. The FT then asked him if he predicts that another such coup will happen. Yes, you can hold me to it, he replies. Now, it goes on, quoting him, they're not speaking out, and he's talking about the elite here, because it's a prisoner's dilemma. They don't want to be the first ones to move or the only ones. The catalysts could go one of two ways. Either the prisoner's dilemma can be broken, or they will just get rid of him through a better coordinated coup. You don't have that yet among the oligarchs, or with any of the ministers, or the FSB. But it is unpalatable for the rest of the elite to live in a North Korea 2.0 with their bank accounts frozen. Other triggers could happen, say a reversal of fortunes on the front line. Now that, of course, tallies with our own analysis. And the piece does end with the potential ramifications of this war on other dictatorships if Putin is seen to fundamentally fail. So Grozov adds, proving that the Russian model is finite and will implode would scare a lot of other wannabe dictators and make them rethink. I was living a good life not being a dictator. Now, let me revert to that. At least that's what I hope will happen. And I think he's right. And it is an important reminder, not that we need one, of how the world is watching this war and its outcomes will transcend Ukraine and Russia. It will impact all of us and the world that we inhabit for the next century. Elizabeth, as our guest, would like to offer you the final word. So I think one interesting aspect to, to watch uh, over the next few days and, and weeks is Greece. So Greece has been virtually silent on matters of Ukraine and, and Russia. But uh, since I cover a lot of shipping, as you know, I've been watching Greek activities. Greece is, is, a, is a major shipping country, has been for a very long time. And Greek shipping companies continue to ship Russian oil and, and so forth, not violating any sanctions. But it is, uh, it is important to bear in mind that, that they are remain active in this space. And so I, I will be watching with keen interest what they will do if further sanctions are imposed. So that's one thing. And then the the other thing is, uh, since we've, we've talked about uh, countries helping Ukraine and, and the latest uh, Swedish package, Greece has, has done so little for Ukraine. And that matters because Greece has a lot of leopard tanks, uh, as you know and your listeners know, uh, has, looking at the list, 
about 350 Leopard 2s and 500 Leopard 1s. And if we look at what other countries, some other countries have done for Ukraine, the Baltic states have essentially given Ukraine everything they have and weakened their own defense as a result, which is also what Sweden has done with its latest package. And, and other countries have been very generous. It stands to reason that, that Greece could give uh, Ukraine at least a few of those Leopard 2s, because uh, Ukraine needs them much more than, than Greece needs them. And yes, uh, Greece would always say, well, we have to worry about Turkey. But I think it's safe to say that Ukraine has to worry a lot more about Russia than Greece has to worry about Turkey. And the Baltic states also have to worry a lot more about Russia than Greece has to worry about Turkey. So I will be watching for that uh, Greek Leopard donations to Ukraine. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk and we do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Giles Gear. The executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. <laughs>